Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hold the Line. So this episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about Roche. So this is the sort of behavioral trilogy part three, as it were. So we have part one, which was Fire, the Labrador pup that we bred. And then we had part two, which was Ren, our GSP. And you can look back and find those on earlier episodes. I'm going to talk a little bit now about Roche, our Vimarana, who is about 18 months old. But I'm also going to kind of generalize it out a little bit from Roche to try to make it a bit more useful to people. I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of high, well, I don't want to say high drive. I think that's become a little bit of a cliche now, kind of a bit overused. But yeah, dog, these dogs, which is like so into hunting, so driven, so environmentally focused and independent. And we're going to sort of talk about that kind of dog and a few thoughts that I have about working with them. Hold the line. Before I get onto that subject, though, there is one other subject that I just wanted to touch on. And this is something which I kind of see doing the rounds every now and again on social media. And it's this idea that I'll, I'll describe what it is first and then we can kind of take it apart a little bit afterwards. But it's this idea that it's bad to deprive a dog of food in order to increase their motivation to work for you in the field. There's this idea that you should feed a dog and there's an absolute idea when it's when it's put forth in this way, that you should feed a dog food before training the dog, that it is somehow cruel to train a dog which is motivated and hungry for that food through depriving the dog of that food beforehand. Now, let's just talk about this idea a little bit, because I have to be honest and say that I see a lot of dogs that are not hungry when we're trying to train them out and about, away from the house, in distracting environments. And it turns out that those dogs have been already fed their breakfast or whatever it was before coming to training. And their breakfast was, you know, pretty substantial breakfast. It, it wasn't um, a tiny little morsel or something <laughs> to make sure that they weren't starving. It was a, it was a sort of proper full breakfast. A lot of people are, rightly I might add, into raw food. And so the breakfast would have been pretty tasty in the scheme of things. And now we're out and about in a distracting place. And we are, for example, putting sausages or cheese in the dog's nose and the dog isn't interested in that. And sometimes if I put forth this idea that maybe we shouldn't feed the dog before training, people that I suggest this to have seen on social media this idea that it's somehow cruel to deprive the dog of that food before training in order to get a better response from them when you train them, in order to end up with a dog which actually wants the food that you're trying to, to train with. And so there's a little bit then of unpicking and explaining to be done, which actually might not have needed to be done if people hadn't taken this message too much to heart. Sometimes, guys, I just have to say, I despair a little bit at the extremes of force freeness. And, and I say that it's sometimes it can almost become a little bit of a competition about who can be even more force free than the next person. And how can we find force if we really look for force when there isn't any? Can we find something that we could 
point the finger at and say, look, that's evidence of a little bit of force there. That's a bad thing that we shouldn't be doing and criticize other trainers for it and so on and so forth instead of just trying to train our dogs in an effective way, which doesn't include the use of aversives. So I think things can really get unnecessarily complicated, to be honest, and they don't need to be that complicated. So let's look at this subject. And I'm going to say it just depends on the individual dog, to be perfectly frank, that I have met and worked with dogs and own dogs who are perfectly able to eat their breakfast or whatever, and then go out to the field and perform just as well as if they hadn't eaten their breakfast. There's not really much noticeable difference to those for those dogs. And then I have also worked with dogs who have not been fed their breakfast, so they're very hungry. And when it comes to training that dog, they are, let's just say, slightly distressed by how hungry they are and by how much they want the food. And it comes across in the sort of snatching of the food and this just sort of wanting the food almost too much to the point that the dog finds it difficult to manage their arousal. And this arousal is not about being outside and it's not about just training or just being around um, game scent or game. It's about the food. So I just point that out because you can get very, very similar over aroused kind of symptoms, let's say. But the source of the over arousal may be the the game or the food dependent on that particular dog. So so obviously this is only relevant to arousal, which is originating from the dog's desire for the food itself. So obviously those dogs would benefit from having some food before they go out to train. So, and then there are dogs who, if you give them a reasonable amount of food before you go out and train them, are much less likely to want to connect with you and much less likely to want to respond to your cues because the environmental reinforcers become much more interesting and reinforcing against your food because they're somewhat satiated when it comes to your food because they've eaten beforehand. So it's simply not the case that we can say blanket across the board for all dogs, that it is somehow uh, tantamount to being cruel to deprive your dog of food before you go out to train your dog. I just completely disagree with that as a statement. And I think there's a risk of people drawing that conclusion because these things get summarized in cute, quirky, one-sentence memes that appear on social media with colourful backing and pictures and they're, they're catchy and they get shared. And before we know it, the whole world believes that it's cruel to ensure your dog is interested in food, sufficiently interested in food to respond to you when you go out and about to train your dog. I mean, let's just look at this the other way. If you feed your dog before you go out to train and if you have a dog that when you feed them, they're less interested or not interested very much in training, then that dog is arguably going to have to stay on the leash all their life because they can't be allowed off leash unless they have a reliable recall, unless they will come back, unless they're motivated to come back to get the reinforcer that you have. So your dog's kind of freedom (laughs) and ability to enjoy the world and the environment and range and just be a dog really is at risk here. Just because you believed that it would be cruel to ensure you had a hungry dog before you went out to train. So that's just a little kind of, um, I don't know, I guess that bugged me a little bit. I saw that on social media a little bit this week and just wanted to put that out there. So anyway, let's get back on to talking about Roche and high drive dogs. Hold the line. So what I would say about Roche, just to give you some background and so you can get a sense of the sort of dog that she is, is that... Well, if I had to choose a word to describe Roche, it would be extra. Roche is just extra. So she is just really, she's very easily over aroused, but that in itself is a double-edged sword because it's a brilliant quality when she's in the field. And I can see how useful it is in so many different ways. So for example, she was very easy to get swimming as a puppy because 
she wanted what we had in the water so much that her slight worry about the water itself was very quickly overcome and she was swimming before you knew what was happening. Equally, she is very happy to get into thick cover. So a lot of the times, some of the HPR breeds, which have thin coats, can often be a bit reluctant to get into cover, maybe because it's a bit prickly, it's a bit thorny. Um, and so sometimes they can kind of um, fanny around the outside of the cover and not really get in there. And um, Rosh doesn't do that. She gets right in there. If she knows there's something in there, she's got no problems. In fact, I'm often a little bit worried about her eyeballs and thorns and things like that. But she's got no problems getting right in to cover. And that, again, is another example of of this. So when she was um, in the litter, she was the first puppy to to do anything. So by that, I mean... If there was any sort of obstacle introduced to the litter, she was the first puppy to surmount that obstacle. So, for example, there was a, a toddler's plastic slide, which the puppies were encouraged to kind of use to get out of one area into another area occasionally during the day. And some of them would be much more worried about this and overcoming their slight um, fear of this new obstacle, negotiating it. And others would be quite confident. And Rosh is one of those who's just, well, she was the first to just go down the slide, of course. And that was the same for every single new thing that she was introduced to. She just threw herself at it because she wanted what was on the other side enough to overcome her slight reservations about what she had to go through to get it. And you can just see this quality in her constantly all the time. <laughs> so it's a good quality. And the other side of the sword, in terms of the double-edged sword, is she is prone to get a bit overexcited, a bit over-aroused about things sometimes. And that's the other side of this, that she wants that thing so much that it's a bit frustrating not to be able to go and get the thing that she wants. And so we have to deal with a little bit of frustration-related over-arousal sometimes. So... Okay, folks, it's time for... A whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. She is in the field. She's got so much hunting drive and independence and she will range really far. And she's just got lots of potential. She is the sort of dog which, now this is another example of just going right through something, through an obstacle as if it's not there, that in our garden we, or yard if you're in North America, <laughs> I realise that we call this area outside our houses different things according to where you live. So if you're in North America, this is your yard. If you're in the UK, this is your garden. I'm not sure what it's called anywhere else. But anyway, so usually we let the dogs out there to have a wee and then we all come back in the house together. And the dogs are not left out there in the garden yard for any extended period of time. They just go out there, go to the toilet and they come back in again. So it's not a situation where we need to have a really secure area so that they can be left out there for many hours at a time. And we've never before had dogs try to get out of this area because they're literally out there just for long enough to go to the toilet. 
So, of course, Rosh would be the first dog that we own. He decides that fences are not boundaries in any way and can easily be overcome. So I don't think she saw anything. I don't think there was anything in particular that tempted her to do this. Although there is a slight chance that it was a rabbit, but I definitely didn't see anything. And I was out there. But before I knew it, she was over the little fence into our vegetable patch and then over the taller fence into the field next door and at the bottom of that field running around our neighbor's stables. And I guess this other fence, the second fence she would have jumped over, would probably be about four, four and a half, five foot high. Um, And it's not a difficult fence to scale in that it is kind of made up of um, thick logs. So it's quite easy for a dog to get over it. But it's in terms of our other dogs, our other dogs have just tended to see this as a psychological barrier and not really try to go over it. Whereas to Rosh, this is just not a barrier in any way. This is just a, you know, it's like a thing you just jump over to get to what you want on the other side. And so that is another good example of the type of dog that she is. So I'll talk about that a little bit more, but she does go out now to toilet on the leash, which frankly is a bit ridiculous, but we'll come on to that in a minute. So Rosh is also big and strong. So, I mean, she's not oversized for Weimaraner, but Weimaraners are quite strong, big dogs. And this kind of sort of big interest in the environment and everything around her combined with her physical strength and size just makes her quite a difficult dog to manage physically and control sometimes. She, particularly if you're on working her on leash, for example. Um, what else is there to say about her? I think I probably described um, Rosh in many ways. So Rosh does not have any UK Weimaraner blood in her, or Weimaraner blood, as you say in North America, which always <laughs> sounds very funny to me. Uh, but probably me saying Weimaraner sounds funny to other people. Um, so she doesn't have any UK blood in her. She is 50% North American field lines. So her dad is a Southpaw um, Weimaraner. He was imported to Belgium by Roche's breeder. And he's actually just been made up to be a French field trial champion. So that's really excellent. And Roche's mum comes from French trialing lines. So there's no... So if you go right back on those French trialing lines, eventually you end up in German um, lines. But there's not, there's not any UK blood. And it's very interesting because she is a very different dog to UK bred Weimaraner. It's like there's, it's, it's almost like she may look similar in that she's got that grey fur and, you know, you see her and you think, ah, it's a Weimaraner. But under the bonnet, she's very, very different in terms of her personality and just every other aspect of her is extremely different. So I think that's kind of given you a bit of an example of what she's like. So if you've got a dog, which any of that sounds like it's going to be um, relevant to, or, or if you're thinking, oh, yes, that sounds like my dog, then hopefully some of the things I'm going to talk about are going to be helpful for you with your dog. Hold the line. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is about, I'm not quite sure how to summarize this with one word or one sentence, but it's about earning environmental reinforcers rather than just going to get them because you want them kind of thing. So I'll give an example of what I mean. And this is a really important example as well. So with this type of dog, what most people naturally want to do, because it's in the short term easier, is to just let this dog get rid of the yayas. So by that, I mean that you arrive somewhere, you know, this dog is going to be boiling with energy when you first get there. And so you just let the dog run around a bit, blow off some steam before you start to do some training. So that's what, that's going to be easier for you when you then get that dog back. It's going to feel like it's an easier dog to manage because they've got rid of some energy. They've run around a bit and had an opportunity to explore. And they're going to hopefully be more focused on you. And so I think that's why a lot of people end up doing this. But I'd really encourage you not to do that. And let me kind of talk you through the several reasons why not. So firstly, what the dog most wants is that they most want to run around everywhere. And if we want the dog to learn to be under control and to respond to us and to respond to our cues, we need to be able to use what most motivates them as a reinforcer. 
So instead, what I do with wash and what I suggest you consider doing is working on some kind of heel work or focus on you and connection stuff. And you may be clicking and treating during this. And then when you get a moment where the dog is, you know, really like a sort of a jackpot moment, a, dog, a moment when the dog is really focused on you better than the other moments or a moment of sustained connection, that's when you might release the dog to go and get rid of the yayas and run about everywhere. So the dog learns that the way to access the environment is through you. And the more that they connect to you, look at you, focus on you, walk, in, walk at heel with you, the more likely they are to get released, to go and run around everywhere. And when the dog has made that connection, which by the way, can take a while, the dog is going to be really super glued to you, really focused on you, because there's nothing they want in the world more than to be released to just go and run everywhere. So, so if you allow the dog to just go run everywhere first to get rid of some yayas, and you don't do that, you don't do the heel work focus thing, then the dog is just kind of getting free access to that environmental reinforcer for not having done anything beforehand. You're just kind of giving it to them for free. And if you then get them back and do some heel work and do some focus, when you then release them back to the environment, it's not going to be quite as reinforcing that time because the dog's kind of had some of it already, if you see what I mean. So it's a little bit like the food subject we were just talking about. So if the dog has run everywhere in the area where you are, the field where you are, whatever, explored and sniffed around and run about and satisfied themselves that they have, you know, checked out the most interesting places, that when you do some heel work and then release the dog again back to all that stuff, it's just not going to be as interesting the second time, is it? Because the dog's already checked it out. So if you want to use all that stuff as a huge reinforcer for your dog, you need to ensure that it is reinforcing by making sure the dog does something that you like, which is reinforceable, and then releasing them to go access it. So that is one reason why this is a really important thing to do. In terms of just the practical side of things, though, it's really important because you might, for example, be arriving at a shoot where your dog then has to walk at heel or under control to the first drive, where they'll then be let off leash. Or if you're in the UK and you want to do the Kennel Club Working Gun Dog Certificate, the first exercise of the Kennel Club Working Gun Dog Certificate is to walk your dog at heel off leash to the starting point. And this is an this is an exercise which I've always thought is really cruelly difficult for HPR owners. <laughs> and, you know, it's the same exercise, whatever whatever subgroup of gun dog you have. If you have a Labrador, it's exactly the same thing as if you have a HPR. And let me tell you, having owned both, I can tell you, hands down, it is much easier to walk a Labrador to heel off leash <laughs> out of the car to the starting point than it is to walk a HPR in a similar way. So I kind of always thought it's not fair, but hey... I didn't set the test. So if you want to do the Kennel Club Working Gun Dog Certificate, this is the first test and you will need to be able to get your dog out of the car and walk them to heel straight away. So there are situations where this is required and you're not always going to have an opportunity to let your dog get rid of the yayas before they have to do some control. So why not work to that standard from the beginning, from the first place? Because if you can if you can have the dog walk to heel immediately out of the car, it's going to be way easier to have the dog walk to heel at any other time because you're kind of training to the most difficult standard in that respect. Does that does that make sense? And when I say walk to heel, by the way, you might not be starting, of course, with walking to heel. That may be way too high of a criteria to, to begin with. So you might just want to be standing still and be working on your dog, paying attention to you and looking at you and offering you focus to be clicked and treated before you then release the dog. Or perhaps you're just working on, say, two steps of heel work before you release the dog. So it's not, you know, you can decide for your dog how what's appropriate for your particular dog? You know, what is a good sort of standard to select when you are releasing them to, to the environment as the reinforcer? And there are a couple of other things that I want to say about this. One is that if you're doing this, if you're releasing the dog to the environment as a reinforcer, you want to make sure that you're not having to fumble around with the leash and unclip it or take it off over the dog's head or anything like that. You want to be able to just instantly and in a moment of your choosing, allow the dog to go access the environment. And the best way to do that is to have a sort of tab leash. So a, sh a short sort of one foot, perhaps little tab, training tab, which is clipped to your dog's collar or harness if you prefer. And when you want to release the dog, you just let go of that tab and the dog runs off with the tab still attached to them. That's the quickest way to release the dog. And the other thing that I want to say, which is really important, is 
about the timing of this release. So you want to make sure, and this is a this is something that people get wrong a lot. You want to make sure that the moment you release the dog, the dog is offering you that focus or that attention that you like. Don't mess up the timing because if you if you wait too long or if your release is just not timed right, the dog may already be looking away or already be disengaging or already be sniffing the floor or whatever when you release them. And then that's what you're reinforcing. So what the dog is doing at the moment that you release them is what's getting reinforced. So you want to have a verbal cue. My my cue, if I want to set the dog of hunting, is get on. Or if I want to just release the dog to go and explore the environment freely is go play. So I will use that marker, that, that cue, as instead of the clicker. So for example, if I'm doing some heel work, I'll be clicking the dog for giving me eye contact and connecting with me and then delivering a treat. And we might be doing that for several steps. And then once I feel like, oh, this is going really well, and my dog is giving me excellent focus, the dog looks at me. And instead of clicking that moment when the dog looks at me, that's when I'll say, go play. So that cue, go play or whatever, replaces the click. So I'm not going to click and treat and then say, go play. The go play cue replaces the click and comes instead of the click at, at a moment of my choosing. So that's really important too, the timing of it. So that was one thing that I would say. And if we had to kind of extrapolate from that and talk about, you know, what's going on here or what is the sort of more general thing to take out, take away from this, it's to teach these dogs that the access to the environment happens through you and through connecting with you and including you and seeing you as relevant and, you know, that kind of thing. If you've ever done that exercise where you have a treat in your fist and you hold it out at shoulder height and the dog knows that there's a treat there and you're waiting for the dog to look away from that treat to your face and when the dog looks away from that treat to your face, you click and then you give the dog the treat, the dog is learning that to get that reinforcer, to get that treat in your hand, I've got to look away from the reinforcer. I've got to look to my person. And looking to my person in the presence of the reinforcer earns me that reinforcer. So it's a kind of a roundabout thing to learn for a dog, isn't it? Because most dogs naturally are like, there's something I want, let's go and get the thing that I want. And when you've got a dog like this, there's a particularly dogs who are just going to, as I've as I've described in multiple ways with Rosh, they're just going to throw themselves through whatever they have to throw themselves through to get what they want in you know the most direct way possible, even if they have to kind of go through granite or something to get there. So these are the dogs that we really need to teach them that to get the reinforcer, disengage from the reinforcer and look to me. And that's a really kind of valuable lesson. And this exercise in terms of you get, it, you get to access all that stuff out there in the world if you connect to me first is a really valuable exercise for them to learn. So anyway, that was the first, that's point one on my list. Hold the line. So point two is probably a slightly simpler point, And that's the idea of working within confined areas until you have a dog which is able to respond to your cues fluently in that confined area. And by confined areas, I also don't mean loads and loads of different confined areas, but to have, you know, maybe two or three fields that you use, which are, you know, not going to be teeming with game and which are well-defined in terms of the dog is unlikely to try to go outside of those fields. Although with a dog like Roche, that's not something that you can necessarily rely on. But you generally want to make sure that, that you're working within a sort of defined and confined area and that you're working on getting this fluent response to your cues. And that's going to be your recall cue and your remote stop cue. And those are going to be the most important things to get your dog to be responding to. Now, I really also like retrieving drills and exercises with these dogs because I feel that those build a lot of focus on you, the handler. And that is a really good thing to be developing. Anything that results in the dog learning to connect to you and work with you in this sort of rural environment, the sort of environment where we want them ultimately to be working is is good because it's going to reduce the chances of the dog ending up going AWOL if they have a history of working with you in these kinds of environments. And you might need to tightly structure your training sessions. So instead of, for example, wandering about through many acres of land and letting your dog free hunt, 
I'm suggesting here that you pick a couple of defined areas and work on things that involve connecting with you. And retrieving drills just happen to tick the bill in that sort of respect. So I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend. And I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me, though, because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force-Free Gundog Training and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. Obviously, I'm not going to get into the whole, you know, the sort of the structure of how to progress through the various different retrieving drills. That's a little bit too much for right now. But the idea is just to be working on these things because they involve connecting to you and also working on your remote stop and your recall away from any game. So you're outdoors in a rural environment with the scent of game around and that's enough for now to be working on getting that response. So so that is the second thing that I want to say. Don't allow your dog free access to hundreds of acres of land and keep the dog working with you in tightly structured training sessions that weave you into the fabric of what is going on with the dog when you're out in these environments, if that makes any sense at all. That's point number two. Hold the line. Point number three, don't quote unquote allow non-response from your dog. So if you cue something, you're going to get a response to that cue. You're not just going to be Sort of like, well, the dog didn't do it. So I guess, you know, next time we'll just try again. Eventually they'll be able to do it next time. Or, you know, oh, we'll just try tomorrow. Or, you know, don't just keep walking (laughs) and think, oh, well, they haven't responded. It's really important that every time you give a cue that you see that response to that cue. So if you give a response and the dog doesn't, if you give, sorry, a cue and the dog doesn't respond, you are going to run out and with your treat, get the response that you want. So if you've recalled the dog and they haven't come, you're going to run out to the dog and if necessary, put your tasty recall treats on their nose. And if your dog is not interested in those tasty recall treats and you have a different problem in terms of food motivation and or too much interest in the environment, and that's the sort of focus focus and attention subject, which I delve into on my online course under the same name, Focus and Attention, on my website, forcefreegundog.com. So we won't go into that bit. We'll assume that your dog is interested when you put the treats in their nose. And then you're going to run backwards and get them to do a tiny little recall just of a few yards to you, give them a tasty treat, release them. And this is the important bit. Practice again and make sure you get that response. You want to just keep working until you get a fluent response in each different situation. And equally, if you give your sit whistle and the dog doesn't respond, you're going to run out, put your treat in their nose, lure them into a sit. 
If they're trailing a long line, you can grab the long line and prevent the dog from being able to freely access the environment and do whatever it is that they're doing. Because sometimes it can be difficult to run out as far as where a dog is. I was just reading a piece of traditional advice in terms of a, a gun dog journal where someone recommended that if the dog ignored a cue, that you run all the way out to the dog and you blow the whistle really loud above the dog's head to sort of startle and surprise them. And I thought, wow, how would you do that if your dog is like 200 yards out to your side? By the time you've got there, your dog would be another 200 yards out still to your side. I mean, you could do a lot of running, frankly, and never catch up with your dog in those situations. So anyway, don't get yourself into that situation in the first place. Make sure you've got a long line in your dog and make sure these cues work fluently with a long line on and within the length of the long line before you start to let the dog get further and further away from you. So that is the next sort of piece of advice. But I think the most important thing is not just to is not to not to be permissive. That's it. So too often force free training gets associated with being permissive and with just letting the dog do whatever they want to do. And I think it's really important to reframe that. In fact, to reject that and to say that's not true. Actually, it's not about being it's not about being permissive and letting the dog do what they want. We have to ensure that each time we give a cue that it is met with the desired response from the dog. And it's just that the way we're going to achieve that is is not in a punitive way and it's not through using aversives, but it is through manipulating the environment and manipulating, you know, what the dog has the freedom to choose to do in that moment. So those are my, that's my tip for number three. Don't allow non-response on the part of your dog. Hold the line. So point number four is feel free to use management if it makes your life easier. And by that, I mean things like if it makes things easier for you to walk your large, very strong dog through the middle of town on a head collar, for example, or on a front attaching harness, for example, then by all means do that. Don't be a purist and think I must be able to walk the dog perfectly to heel with a leash on my little finger only on a flat collar um, <laughs> or I'm somehow a failure as a dog trainer. So don't think like that. If something makes your life easier, if a, if a piece of equipment makes your life easier and it's not aversive, then by all means use that piece of equipment. So an example of that is taking Rosh out into the yard to have a wee on the leash. So then I just don't have to think about her jumping over the fence or having to recall her and have tasty recall treats available to reinforce that recall. Or is she actually going to have a wee or is she going to be too interested in sniffing around to think about having a wee? <laughs> and I'm going to be standing here for ages waiting for her to wee. So I just put her on the leash, take her out to one boring area where she has quite a small spot to go to the toilet on within length of the leash. And that's what we do. So we just use management. So just really think about that. I mean, it, it, it does seem very ridiculous to be putting a dog on the leash to go out and have a wee in, the, in our own yard, but that's what we do. And it works and it short circuits and prevents a lot of other stuff that would be very stressful. So if you've got a situation that you think, oh, if only I could use this thing at this moment, things would be a lot easier but I'm feeling like a failure if I use it. Well, don't feel like a failure, just use it. Especially if this this behavior or this thing that you need help with is actually not part of your dog's um, job description as a working dog. So for example, HBR breeds are not bred to walk to heel for hundreds and hundreds of yards. They're just That's just not one of the things that they're bred for because it's not what they are assessed doing in field trials. So Therefore, it's not something they are selected for, really. The hunting ability is going to be far more important when it comes to selecting a HBR breed. So that means that it is going to be more challenging to teach a HBR to walk to heel for long distances, or actually sometimes for any distance around distractions. So if it makes it easier for you, don't feel at all bummed if you have to use a piece of equipment in that situation. Whereas, for example, with my Labrador, I would kind of feel like okay, I kind of expect you to be able to walk to heel through town. I would expect that of you because that is your breed description. And that kind of is one of the things that I would be wanting to work towards with you. So it's a little bit about understanding the breed differences, which is another of my points. So, so I'm not going to go into that here. Otherwise, I'll end up explaining two points in one. But suffice to say, 
If a piece of equipment makes life easier for you and it's not an aversive piece of equipment, then feel free to use it, particularly if the situation that you need to use it in isn't part of the the dog's ultimate job description, as it were, and isn't about the dog's working ability and success as a representative of their of their breed in terms of working. So if that makes any sense at all, let's get on. Next point. Hold the line. The next point, point five, is actually not totally gundog related in terms of working related because it's about the dog around the house and my experience is that dogs like this whatever that means can often be really difficult around the house so they can also frequently be the sort of dog which just chews stuff up or gets into trouble or is a pain in the bum around the house in some way or other and the ways that they can be a pain in the bum vary but frequently it's And it's extra tough because the thing that's hard about it is you've got a dog which is really difficult when you go out of the house with the dog to train because of this sort of um, massive hunting drive that the dog has. But you've also got a dog which is difficult when you come home around the house. They're a bit of a pain in the bum. So you kind of don't get much downtime as a dog owner, handler. And you're always having to deal with something or other. It's just what you're dealing with, which is changing. So What I would say there is actually quite similar to what I said before. So feel free to use the crate. The crate is a marvellous tool and in most situations will remove most tempting stuff from your dog so that they can't make the wrong choices. Obviously, they can still chew up blankets in the crate, which I have had some experience of with Rosh, but you can put them in there without any blankets if you want to. And I tend to find that they do grow out of this stuff around the house business. So... Rosh has grown out of it now. She's uh, she's 18 months old, almost, and she's not really chewed up any blankets for many months now. She stopped trying to steal the toilet paper and rip that to shreds. She stopped eating the sofa, which, you know, it's, we're going to throw the sofa away <laughs> when we move house because it's a little bit dead now. But I'm kind of reassured that whatever future sofa we might own might potentially have a little bit of a chance because... The desire to eat fabrics seems to have decreased somewhat. So I think that just this is one which will get better given time. And it's a large amount of just weathering the difficult behavior around the house and trying to prevent it as much as possible. Whilst also acknowledging that it's it's not usually possible to prevent it 100% because unless you keep the dog shut in the crate all the time or unless your entire life revolves around walking around the house supervising the dog, that things will happen here and there, which are undesirable when it comes to being a pain in the bum around the house. But it will get better usually as you get out of adolescence. It's amazing how much dogs vary with this as much as anything else. So I've raised dogs which are just just really easy, just really easy to have around the house. Like our Labrador, Moy is just so easy around the house. And I often say I could own eight versions of Moy, or you could own one version of Rosh. That's kind of what it's like, really, (laughs) in terms of um, time and attention and input. So dogs are all different. And if you're struggling with a particular dog, it's probably not you. And you shouldn't feel like you're a failure in any way. You might just have a difficult dog. And you know what? You'll learn valuable things from that dog. But try not to label yourself as, you know, a failure or feel bad about the fact that you're finding things difficult because it's likely nothing to do with you. It's probably just that you have a challenging dog. So that's kind of related a little bit to the previous point about management, because the crate is obviously a management tool as much as anything else is. So do feel free to use these and stair gates as well are great too, just to keep the dog kind of from making the wrong choices, actually. And, you know, I think that dogs, these this type of dog benefits a lot from having choices removed. There's a sense of, I'll try and describe this to you because otherwise I think it's a bit hard to get across. It may even sound slightly not force-free, but this is what I mean, that at times in the past when Rosh has been being a pain in the bum and has been getting into things she's not supposed to get into, while, for example, I've been trying to work at my computer, and when I've kind of got bored of intervening and distracting her, removing whatever it is, and after I've done this like three times or something, I've just been like, right, you're going to go in your crate because I can't 
focus on you all the time. I need to work right now. So I put her in the crate and there's this just sense of calm and peace that comes over her and she just settles in the crate and goes to sleep. And this kind of energy and the just looking for stuff to get into around the house thing, because that is taken away as a choice, she just chills in the crate. And actually, I think she's much calmer and much less stressed with fewer choices on the table being in that crate at these times than she is left roaming around the house with all the options on the table and potentially things to get into, which we don't want her to get into. So I think that kind of describes what I'm trying to say. But yeah, I think often people think of crates as being punishment or as, you know, even if you're not putting the dog in there as a kind of punisher, people often, it's really hard to get people to think of the crate as even just neutral, think, forget about being positive, but even just neutral, it's, it's difficult to get people to see it in that way. And I think a lot of these dogs actually benefit from being, I don't want to use the word confined, being held, being contained. And it's the structure that is associated with this as well, which just really helps them. So anyway, let's move on to the next point. But that one is another kind of management related one, really. Hold the line. So point six is just to really be aware of the breed differences here. And I know that that sounds like a really simple, obvious thing to say, but you'd be surprised at the depth to which expectations in terms of what a dog should be able to do get influenced by the breeds which are numerically the most popular. So for example, if you have a retriever as a breed, that's if that's the dog you have, a retriever, whether it's a Labrador or a flat-coated retriever or a Chesapeake Bay retriever or whatever, whatever dog it is, the your ultimate kind of thing you're aiming towards is being able to walk the dog at heel. And for that just to be completely automatic and not even to be a challenge or to be a difficult thing, that, that should just be, that's, that's a pretty basic thing for, for this category of dog because that is something you're going to build on and end up with being able to do if you want to compete with your dog. That is that is going to be part of your dog's job description, ultimately, and part of the thing that they are assessed as being able to do in terms of field trials. And it's also something that is required for, f- from them. And because retrievers are numerically the most popular subgroup of gun dog, this expectation insidiously influences expectations of every other subgroup and people who own for example hbrs especially young hbrs who might be maturing very slowly can often find it just they just can't understand why it's so much harder for them to get their dog to walk at heel than it is for example the person next to them in their puppy class who's got a labrador to get their dog to walk to heel and the reason for that is just the breed difference and it's what the dogs are, are bred to to be like. Now, that doesn't mean that you should give up and you should just be like, well, I'm just never going to teach my dog to walk at heel, so I'm just going to stop even trying. doesn't mean that at all. You should still have that as a goal and as your expectation. But if you're finding it difficult, don't think that it's down to you and your failure or there's something that you're not doing quite right. I'm just going to read to you some clips from this book that I have here. The book is called working pointers and setters and it's by david hudson and it's a very kind of popular um well-known book so feel free to look it up the bit i'm going to read to you is on page 56 and 57 if you happen to have the book so here we go the first the first i'm going to read is this he says the business of walking on lead is not something that seems to come naturally to pointers or setters Most older dogs can be taught to walk to heel, or at least to walk on a lead without continually pulling, but this doesn't seem to apply to the pointer and setter breeds. And there's a bit of a break. And then the next bit I'm going to read is on page 57. If you want your dog to walk properly, quietly and soberly at heel, then it is almost certainly possible for you to train him to do so, but it may take quite a lot of time and effort when compared to some other breeds. I am saying that being connected to the dog by a fairly taut length of line is not uncommon, even among the best trainers of pointers and setters. How insistent you are upon this particular aspect of discipline is pretty much up to you. But if your pup doesn't amble along your heel like a well-bred Labrador, then you will not be alone among pointer and setter owners. In fact, you will actually be in some pretty good company. So he also says, last little bit, 
It is certainly not impossible to train pointers and setters to walk at heel or to trot along on a slack lead, but it is not usually easily accomplished. Go to a field trial and take note of how many of the dogs are straining at their leashes as they wait their turn to run. Then consider that as trial entrants, these are probably some of the best trained pointers and setters in the country. Pulling on the lead, or at least standing at all times at the full limit of the lead's travel, seems to be the default state of most pointers and setters. And that's really important to hear that. And I think, you know, perhaps because people come through indoor training classes or classes which assume that walking on a loose leash or walking to heel is like a basic requirement, that when their pointer or setter or HBR finds this really difficult, they then think that how will I be able to achieve all this more advanced stuff? How will I be able to get my dog to stop to the flush of game or I don't know, not to chase or to point or whatever if I can't get my dog to just walk to heel? Like it's as if as if walking to heel is like this thing that you should master before you can go on and do all the other stuff. And someone commented to me recently about the number of dogs and a HBR field trial who were wearing um, a sort of figure of eight head collar or some sort of head collar in the gallery in between their runs. And that's just because it's really unpleasant, frankly, to be pulled around by a very large, strong dog all day when they're not having a run, when they're not off leash competing. And for some reason, pointers and setters, the pointer and setter community have evolved a different sort of tradition, which is the use of prong collars at these moments when they're waiting in the gallery. But as David Hudson points out in his book, which I've just read you some clips of, these are the very best trained pointers and setters and HBRs that there are. I mean, they're competing successfully frequently in field trials. So this is not about a lack of training, a lack of interest in training. Now, this idea of heel work being a sort of basic requirement or something that all dogs should be able to do is something that is kind of upheld all the way through pretty much every um, system of assessment that we have. So if you look at the Gundog Club Awards, if you know anything about the Gundog Club, even from grade one, we have on-leash heel work and grade two, we have some off-leash heel work. And it is very short, brief bursts of heel work, but still it's the same pretty much for retrievers or for HBRs or for Spaniels. So there's not any sort of recognition that actually this heel work thing is way harder for HBRs than it is for some of these other breeds. So I think that, you know, this is something that is as I mentioned also there in the Kennel Club Working Gun Dog Certificate, being that first exercise, the dogs get out of the car and they have to walk off leash to heel to the beginning of the first quote unquote drive. And that can sometimes be quite some way. So it's not really defined exactly what the distance is there, but it's going to be getting your dog out of the car in a new environment where they've never been before, surrounded by a bunch of usually strange dogs that they've not met before. And then all of you having to walk with all your dogs at heel off leash together to the first drive. So I think the thing to say here is be aware of the breed differences and be aware that not everybody else around you is as aware as you might be. So if you go, for example, to, I don't know, a retriever trainer with your HBR breed and you are struggling to get your dog to walk to heel and they're there with a super glued to their side Labrador, then just be aware that a lot of that is not down to some sort of innate ability that they have as a trainer, probably. It's down to the type of dog that they have and what that type of dog brings with them to the table. Just to be clear, I'm not advocating that we throw out heel work for these breeds and we sort of, I don't know, resolve ourselves to not being able to train them to walk at heel. That's not what I'm saying at all. I am saying that it's much harder and that this is often unacknowledged and unrecognised. And it's actually unacknowledged and unrecognised even by the people who um, design the testing systems themselves sometimes. So you need to kind of be really on it as a new puppy owner and be able to see your dog as a different type of dog and not compare them to, for example, a retriever if you are struggling with this with a HBR breed. You should, though, be able to aspire to walk your dog off leash at heel over a pretty sort of short to moderate distance reliably. So it should be you should be able to have a decent, useful 
level of heel work. For example, if you were working on a shoot and you wanted to heal your dog between drives, you should be able to achieve that. So that is definitely something that you can aim towards. But do understand that particularly with a young HBR and HBRs do mature much more slowly than a lot of other breeds, that this is going to be difficult for you. And do you know that's okay because your dog has other strengths and other things that you can be working on. And it doesn't mean that you have to master heel work in order to be able to proceed. You can have a dog that can't walk at heel at all, that strains on the leash terribly, that pulls you around everywhere. And that, you know, if they weren't wearing a head collar, you would be flat on your face. And that dog can be made up to be a field trial champion without that fact changing at all. I want you to understand that heel work (laughs) is not something that you need to master to be able to make a success of your HBR. But you should, I think, keep keep at it, keep training it. Hold the line. So the final point that I have, which is point, I think we're on point seven by now, I've kind of lost track to be honest, is about the value of extinction. So what do I mean by that? So by that, I just mean these dogs, they're so pumped around game often that if you start out with the idea that a bird is going to flush and you're going to blow your sit whistle and that your dog is going to respond and sit, well, you might be disappointed, um, to put it mildly. So I think when you're first introducing these dogs to birds, it's really good to assume that there is going to be some kind of a chase of some distance after the game flushes. And at first, not to fight that with your sort of stop or... Um, you know, attempting to get steadiness or anything like that. The dog can't get the bird. The bird has flown away. And the chase isn't going to be that reinforcing with a bird as compared to ground game because the bird is, you know, up in the air, unachievable, unattainable. And the dog kind of knows that on some level. And after a few reps, the dog is going to realize this on a deeper level. How many reps that is depends very much on your dog, how driven they are and how much they're going to keep throwing themselves at it in the hope that eventually they're going to somehow miraculously fly and get the bird or something. So, but your dog will get there eventually to the point where they are not that committed to the chase. And when you see them starting to not be committed to the chase, that's the moment when you can, to begin with, introduce a recall. So I suggest that when you first start to work on game, for example, and I don't know, you've got your dog kind of pointing and your dog flushes game, that you allow that little mini chase to happen. And what you're doing is you're going to watch your dog and you're going to watch for the moment when their desire to chase is waning. So your dog may just slow down, begin to disengage from that chase, begin to kind of give up on it. That's the moment to recall your dog. And what will happen is that you'll find that this this becomes earlier and earlier in the process. So your dog eventually is just putting the game up and they're like, oh, there's no point even bothering to try to chase that. And when you get to that point where there's not really much sort of commitment to the idea of the chase at all happening with the bird, that's when you can start to put your sit whistle in, assuming that you've done all of the previous sit whistle training with your dog, remote stop training with your dog, or if you want your dog to stand, that you've done all the previous remote stand training <laughs> with your dog. So then you can start to use your your stop um, cue instead at that moment, instead of the recall. But this way you're not fighting the the dog. It's not going to be the dog really wanting to chase the bird and you really wanting the dog to sit. And there's kind of massive conflict in terms of what you want, because you're going to Watch your dog, watch for when they've kind of given up on the idea of the bird and time your recall for that moment. And you'll find that through time, through reps, through experience and exposure, that will become earlier and earlier in the process until eventually your dog's just giving a little token, sort of two or three trots before they're recalled back to you. And at that point, you can be like, right, this is when we're going to start to put the stop whistle in because I'm not going to be fighting you anymore with this because you've already kind of given up the idea of the chase. Now, ground game is a completely different subject because the ground game, the dog knows is, you know, if they, only they can catch up with it, they can get it. And so this doesn't apply to ground game. This only applies to birds. And my big tip really, and this is something that may not be possible depending on where you live, but my big tip is to try to work with birds mostly. If you can get your dog onto birds and understanding that birds are the thing that we're looking for, then sometimes you can get to the point where the dog just doesn't take much notice of ground game and rabbits because they're not really relevant. They don't get shot. They're not really something that you're going out looking for together. And the dog can start to not be so focused on them because they're really focused on finding the birds instead for you. And often that is like the best way to approach this. But yeah, with the birds, don't fight the dog's pumped desire to 
chase the bird unless obviously it's an unsafe situation like they're going to chase it across a road or something but if if it's a safe situation and they're just going to have a little chase just be ready with your recall whistle and the recall is the thing that you'll be working on first of all it's easier to to call a dog back to you than it is to get them to sit at this moment because what the dog is primed to do is to move they really want to move their body they want to move their body after the departing bird and if you recall the dog all you're doing is turning that into move your body back towards me so the dog still gets to move their body they're just coming back towards you instead and so it becomes a little bit easier than just sit still and watch that really tempting thing depart into the distance so that my tip work on the recall at this moment and time that recall for when the dog has started to give up the idea of the chase in the first place and hopefully that will move earlier and earlier in the sequence because the dog will be learning here never get this bird there's not much point in kind of chasing it so uh, you know i'm going to be less committed to the idea of chasing it through time and we're going to make the most of this extinction process which the dog is going to go through until eventually we'll be able to replace that recall with a stop there we go those that's <laughs> that's my kind of um i think there's multiple tips actually there but that was supposed to be tip number seven all the line so here's a little recap just to leave you with Number one, teach the dog to earn the release to the environment because that is a reinforcer. Don't waste that reinforcer by letting the dog just have it for free to get rid of the yayas. Make sure the dog learns through time that access to that reinforcer, that environmental reinforcer is through you. Tip number two, work within certain confined areas. Don't give your dog access to hundreds and hundreds of acres Keep things structured, both in terms of where you're working and in terms of what you're asking the dog to do. So in terms of retrieving, weave yourself in there, make yourself relevant. Be working on behaviours that involve you and the dog connecting together and the dog earning your reinforcers in this environment. And the environment itself, as I said, being confined, defined and maybe like two or three enclosed, relatively enclosed areas. Tip number three Do not, quote unquote, allow non-response from your dog. If your dog doesn't respond to a cue, make sure that you approach your dog and that you get that response through force-free means, of course, and that you then practice that over and over until that response becomes fluent. Tip number four, management. Do use it. Whatever, whatever that is in terms of whatever makes your life easier. If you want to use pieces of equipment that are not aversive, but which do manage your dog somehow, like front attaching harnesses or like um, crates, use these things, which you will find make life easier and don't sort of view them as the easy way out or as not training or think that you failed in some way because you're relying on them. Feel free to make maximal use of management wherever possible. It's an excellent thing to be turning to. And it's very easy as well, most of the time to implement. Number five, stuff around the house will get easier when your dog goes through adolescence and comes out the other side. Most of these obnoxious behaviors around the house will get easier. But again, do use the crate to take some options off the table for your dog. And you'll probably find that your dog is calmer when you give them fewer choices And you remove the choices that you don't want them to make because they're no longer put in that position where the world is tempting and they know that there are some things which you prefer them not to do and which they really would like to do. And all of that creates a lot of conflict for the dog. So just take that conflict away by removing those choices for the dog. Number six, be aware of breed differences and be aware that other people around you, particularly if they have... Um, subgroups of Gundog, which are not the group of Gundog that you have, for example, if they've got retrievers and you've got HBLs or pointers or setters, that they may not understand the struggles of your unique subgroup. So just be aware of breed differences and that different things come easier or harder to different, different dogs. So keep that in mind. And also keep in mind that testing systems don't always keep that in mind. And people's expectations and assumptions of what your dog quote unquote should be able to do by a certain age often also don't keep that in mind. Point number seven, think about extinction as being quite useful sometimes and how you can work with that at this moment when birds are flushed to time your firstly recall response and then to move that recall response into a sit-whistle response at this moment. So don't fight this massive drive that the dog has. Allow the dog to learn from the game itself, from the birds itself. They're not going to get this. 
and then you can slowly bring in your control as you see that the dog is ready to receive that and once you've put in the groundwork away from game first. So those are my points and I hope they're useful. Rosh is doing really well at the moment and we are off on a little trip to take her to be hip scored in the UK next week and that's going to involve a vomit inducing four hour ferry in each direction which I'm not looking forward to at all. I am looking forward to having a little break away. Moy our Labrador is going to have a little holiday with my parents here at home and we'll just be taking Ren and Rosh with us. So anyway that's our little trip coming up. Hope you guys are having fun with your dogs wherever you are in the world and I will catch up with you next time. Ding 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 